Congratulations, you served the Lord. So Majid is going to be here next week. And as a body of believers, I really would encourage you to come. And, and look, I get it. I know it's uncomfortable. It's no fun to talk about. And it's no fun to think about because you feel helpless. I don't know what to do. What can I, so I don't do anything. Man, come anyway and know that there is something you can do, especially with the power of technology today. When you saw what happened with Yousef, all of a sudden the Twitter sphere blew up and don't think for a second that Iranian leaders are not reading Twitter because all of a sudden they're changing the story and all of a sudden it's public and we can do something. Even if it's just the ministry of presence, the ministry of them knowing somewhere around the world that people are praying for them. Even if it's just you're the fourth man in the fire who looks something like the son of God to them. God calls some of us to go, but he calls all of us to pray to do something. So next Sunday, please, if you can be here, it's going to be fascinating conversation with, uh, with Majid. If you would go to the book of Acts chapter 24. And while you're turning there, we're trying something a little different today. Uh, if you get hung up on the idea that the Bible is a book, right? That I have to, it has to be pages. And, and, and let me, let me be frank. I kind of am that guy. I kind of like the idea of a book, you know, the feel of it. And, but understand that if we're caught up in what format the Bible came in, we'd, I'd have walked in here this morning with stone tablets, okay? Or at the very best, a long, long scroll of Greek papyrus, okay? But that's, it's not so much the format that it comes on as it is what happens when it goes into you that happens. And so we are, if you go to uversion.com, I know there are a lot of people in here this morning with PDA, not public display of affection, but personal digital assistance. And or is that, we don't call them that anymore, do we? Your smartphones, by the way, that phone is only as smart as the person putting information in it. That's all I'm saying. And if, you, if I've been late to a meeting with you recently, you know that that is a true statement. Um, Uversion.com, you can search Conduit Church, find our little group, and then there's a live event in there where I have put the big ticket notes as well as the scriptures that you can follow along with it. Hit your little button. So for those of you that are kicking it old school like I generally do, this is of no use to you. But for those of you that are my favorite uh, picture ever was in the, when we were in the Tennessee a few months ago, and where I don't know where uh, Angela, there she is. Angela Reno on the front row, like a good spiritual person. Picture on the front page of the paper with her looking at her phone during church. So it looks like she's texting, right? But she's not, she's on her Bible. Oh, she was texting. That's, I thought you were on your Bible. Oh. What she's saying is that David Whetstone, who is our uh, professional crazy missionary guy in Africa, we, we texted him that morning. That was what that was. Ah, but anyway, she's on the cover of the paper. Her mom is like, honey, you can't be looking at your phone during church. But you can now because if you've got your smartphone, so that's enough of that. But it's, it's got the ability for you can put notes in there. You can hit the button. It goes right to the verse. And if not, you want to kick it old school like me. Uh, it's on page 987. <laughs> Chapter 24, verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullius, which was, by the way, like the Johnny Cochran of the day. Okay, he was the, if it doesn't fit, it must acquit guy. Like the eloquent, you know, famous lawyer that was good with his speech. That was Tertullius, and he is about to bring a case against Paul. And he says, uh, they brought charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullius 
presented his case before Felix, and this is like one of the most major hiney kissings you'll ever see, because Felix, history, whether it's Christian or non-Christian, says that Felix was a worthless guy. He was a former Roman slave that was appointed as a lawyer as a favor because of his brother. He was known as to be cruel, a thief, a lying crook. And so when you hear Tertullius say this, that uh, my most high, excellent guy, you're awesome. We acknowledge this profound gratitude, yada, yada, yada. But verse four, but in order to not weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. And when we found this man to be a troublemaker, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, speaking of Paul, stirring up riots among the Jews and all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. That was an insult to him. If you remember when Nathaniel was called by Jesus and he learned that Jesus was from Nazareth, he says, oh, does anything good come out of Nazareth? Ugh. It's like saying you're just a yucky guy. It's what a lot of times in New York or LA, they call us the flyover states. So if you live here, you don't know this, but that's what they're doing when you're not around. If they're from LA or New York and high positions of power, they look at us with a sense of curiosity. Uh, the NASCAR crowd, it's ugh. It's, it's, you know what I mean? They, they wouldn't say that to your face, but that's what they're thinking. And he says that, um, and if you're from LA, I'm, I'm, you know, maybe you don't think that, but positions of power, Hollywood executives, those types of people think that about us. And if you're a Hollywood executive, I'm out of digging my hole. So I'm, if you don't need a hand out of this one. So he's basically saying you're yucky. And not only are you yucky, you're from a cult, a sect, you're a yucky guy from a cult. And even tried to desecrate the temple so that when the, uh, we seized him, and by examining him yourself, you're going to know, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. In verse 9, the Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. And when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, and so I gladly make my defense. In verse 11, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. If you ever wonder, we talk about times when we are feeling attacked by the enemy, a telltale sign that the enemy is attacking you or I or our leaders is lies. Jesus said that Satan was the father of lies. When people are saying things that are untrue about you, and if you've never had that happen before, it's just a blast. But it's the enemy. It's what he does. He twists the truth. It's his, it's his only weapon. It's his only power. In the way that Jesus' word at the end it comes out, it's a sword. It's his weapon. It's the word. It's truth. The enemy's is a lie. When they're lying about you or I, just like they did with Yusuf, when they released this statement that he's a rapist, and it, you know, none of those ever appeared in any charges that were ever brought before him, but that is the enemy's attack to discredit you or I as to lie. Whether it's on a macro level or on a micro level, look out for that as an attack of the enemy. It's what happened to Paul. This is what I love. He says, look, that is not true. However, verse 14, I admit, I think King James says I'm guilty of, that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, and so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Paul says, I am uh, not guilty of this nonsense, but let me tell you what, if you want to accuse me of anything, 
What is the old country song? I'm guilty of love in the first degree. If you're not old enough to remember that, that's probably better. Paul would say that I am not guilty of these things, but this I am guilty of. And he actually says three things. I'm a follower of the way. He says that I believe, number two, in the law and the prophets, everything in the scriptures. I believe in the scriptures. I'm a follower of the way. I am a believer in the scriptures. And number three, I have a hope of a resurrection that is coming someday. And, and then he ends in the next verse when he says that I am able to strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I don't know how you came in feeling this morning. Maybe you came in and felt that you had a weight on you because I'm just not doing enough for God or I can't be this guy or that guy or you, Majid or I can't lead worship or, or maybe it just, I just blew it again and I have this conscience thing or I just feel like I'm not who I'm supposed to be in Christ and that weight of this burden on us. And Paul gives us here the best recipe for how to shake that off of you. You ought to be guilty of three things, to be a follower of the way, to believe that all scriptures are inspired or written by God, and three, that hoping for a resurrection. Because what he does is says, number one, I'm a follower of the way. Notice that he didn't say, I am a Christian. And it's in some ways semantics, but if you're interested, only three times in the New Testament is the word Christian used. It's used in somewhere around Acts 9. Some of you Bible guys who are smarter than me will figure this out. But you know, when they first called them Christians. And then Herod at one point looks to Paul and says, man, you're almost you're persuading me to be a Christian. And that word Christian, by the way, was, it was an insult that was derogatory. It was basically the only equivalent we would have is my mini-me. So think of Dr. Evil and then mini-me, right? That's what they're saying. It's your Jesus is mini-me. You're a little Christ. And he's saying mockingly to Paul, you're almost persuading me of being a Jesus mini-me. And then Peter later would say that I uh, suffered as a Christian. Every other time they refer to themselves as a follower of the way. I love it when a name defines not just like it sounds good or it has an X in it. So for marketing purposes, it's memorable. When a name actually means something of what you're doing. When I uh, started a headhunting firm in 2000, we worked predominantly with Asians, uh, South Asians, Indians, Middle Eastern. And so the name of the company was Shikari. We were headhunters and it was a Hindi word for big game hunter. Uh, my management company was called Platform because we were creating, we felt that fame was a stage, a platform for somebody to speak from. So you build a platform for them to speak from. The word conduit, you know, when we first batted around the idea of conduit, I don't know if you remember those conversations, we were a little like, I don't know, it's kind of, sounds like a pipe. It's because it is. We just didn't know. But what we loved about it was that it actually was what we are. Jesus said from you would flow rivers of living water. That we're just a pipe and we hook ourselves up to the, the, the spout. And as long as we keep our, the other end open, he'll just continue to let it flow through us. We're a conduit. It's where that name came from. A follower of the way is an amazing title, a phrase. And I don't, look, we're not going to go out there and change all of our bumper stickers. I don't, none of that. But I'm just saying that if you think about that phrase of what it means, it says what we are. Jesus would say what? That I am the way, the truth, and the life. That follow me. Every time he would encounter somebody, he would say, follow me. He took them on a journey. They were going a certain way. And it is great because when I just declare myself 
a Christian and I begin to define myself, if I were to ask you today, write down, what does it mean to be a Christian? Maybe not in this room, but in a lot of rooms across America, you know, I go to church, I, you know, I tithe, I sit on the front row about once a month, you know, raise my hands at the time of the song when I'm supposed to. And we would define it centered around, oftentimes, maybe, again, not you, but some would, around this. We come to church on Sundays. And I would say to you that if that's your definition of Christian, you could really expand it because Jesus said, follow me. It denoted a movement. It denoted we're going on a journey somewhere, that we're going on his way. And it's a great way. And if you are on that journey, and again, not just you're coming in and you're punching your clock, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't come together, right? Hebrews 10 would tell us to not forsake coming together. But what do we do once we get here, right? Well, we know. We do three fast songs, two slow songs, an offering sermon, the announcements, and we do this, you know what I mean? And then we go. I think it's verse 24, right before that, Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews, which I believe to be Paul, it was, there's dispute among that, and if you debate that, you're, you're welcome to be wrong, but that's what I would say is, um, but he said, in the verse right before that, when you come together, spur one another on to good works. So when you're together, you do that. Like, hey, we could do this. We could do something for Majid. You could, you know, I double dog dare you to do something. It's basically that's it. We're here to encourage each other to spur one another on to good works. So don't forsake coming together because together we actually can do more. Bingo. Come together and do that on the way to what I love this, the resurrection when you look at what Paul is doing, he's really laying out a game plan. He says, I am on, I'm a follower of the way. I'm using the scriptures, which are like my roadmap, and the destination is resurrection. But on this way that we're on, Jesus would actually say that Matthew 7, 14-ish, that the way that leads to destruction is broad. And the way that leads to eternal life, the gate, he would say the way and the gate is narrow. And that could seem initially kind of harsh. Why'd you make it so hard? I don't know how many of you have ever had to move yourselves as a family. Like you didn't get the company to show up with a semi, but you had to move yourselves. I'm, I'm thinking of the McComish family. We helped them move last year. The LaRoccas, we helped them move. These large trucks full of stuff. And if you're driving one of those, you gotta be on a road with some width on it. You need some room to operate. It doesn't fit on a little narrow winding road. It sure doesn't fit through the little tunnel over on Clovercroft. You know what I'm saying? The one where you got to stop and honk your horn. And Jesus, I think, was giving us some mercy. And he said, look, just leave all your junk at home. You don't need it. Your religion, those rules and regulations and systems and policies, and just throw them off. It ain't going to fit anyway. Jonathan is an active uh, hiker. He's hiked the AT. Uh, Joe and I hiked, theoretically, in Africa. But what we figure out when you go someplace where you're going to do a lot of walking is you don't want to take a lot of stuff. It's a huge pain in the rear end. So you want to find things that are agile, things that could be serve multiple purposes, and put it as small as you can because you're much more effective. And I think that Jesus is saying the way is broad that leads to destruction. There's a lot of religion out there. There's a lot of things that'll bind you up and slow you down. Shed it all and go through the narrow gate. It's so much easier to go that way. 
And the way of that means that we should be, people around us as we're on the way, should be affected by that in a positive way. And I have an article that's actually available on the uh, version site. If not, just go home and you can, you can go to the Times online, the London Times, or, which means you have to pay for it. Actually, just go to richarddawkins.com. There you go. I just told you. Go to an atheist site, okay? And he has it posted on there. This article about the way of Christ and what it means. And this is an atheist who wrote an op-ed piece in January of 2009 in the London Times. And it's titled, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe That Africa Needs God. And he says, he, was, he grew up in Africa as a child, and he goes back to visit Africa as an adult, and he says, as a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contributions that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, listen to this, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. He says that he made an observation that when we had friends who were missionaries as a child, I stayed with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional rural African village. In the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have, a love this, liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. He goes on to say, whenever we entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces of the people as we passed and spoke to them. Something in their eyes, the way they approached you, direct, man to man, without looking down or away. They had not become more deferential towards strangers, in some ways less so, but more open. He goes on to talk about how this doesn't fit. He, he would like to be able to say that, yeah, Christians are just bringing water, so of course it's going to be better. We can celebrate that, but his exact words are, this doesn't fit the facts. And he ends with saying, and I'm afraid, it ha he says, uh, those who want Africa to walk tall amidst the 21st century global competition must not kid themselves that providing the material means or even the know-how that accompanies what we call development will make the change. A whole belief system must first be supplanted. And I'm afraid, this is his words, I'm afraid it has to be supplanted by another. Removing Christian evangelism from the African equation may leave the continent at the mercy of a malign fusion of Nike, of the witch doctor, the mobile phone, the machete, and I would add radical Islam. RichardDawkins.com, or you can go to the version site and you could read the entire op-ed piece. It's amazing. And what he is saying is that when you follow the way of Christ, things change around you. They ought to. If we're only defining our walk with Christ as our time here on a Sunday, and then we go back to our real life, Boy, have we missed the point. And my question for me, and it's an uncomfortable one, is if Matthew Paris wrote an op-ed piece about me, and he objectively said, yeah, Darren's life is actually better. Like, it's better the way it is, with Christ in his life. And would they do the same about you? Would your kids, 
write that about you, that our lives are better because mom and dad are following Christ on the way that leads to resurrection. It's an uncomfortable question, but one that we ought to ask. I feel like we could spend our entire lives being really, really busy doing a whole bunch of stuff that at the end was just busy work. I mean, is, are you liberated? Are you relaxed? You ought to be. Jesus said, my burden is easy. My load is light. <laughs> Relax. Stop freaking out. I'm under, got under control. And it happens when we follow the way, the narrow way, the one that I get to shed all of those burdens and all that junk and just follow the simplicity of the gospel. I follow the way. And how do I know how to follow the way? The scriptures. Paul would say, I believe everything that was written in the law and in the prophets, everything. And if you're a Jewish believer during that time, that was uh, unfortunate because how would I describe Isaiah 53? That he was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we who are like sheep have gone astray, but Jehovah, you know, he's put our iniquities on him. That, that, so they just skipped it. In Psalm 22, where they see that literally crucifixion is described in detail of the Messiah that was coming hundreds of years before it was even invented. How do you, how do you do that? Well, you skip it. How do we as Christians, what parts of the scriptures am I skipping? What parts of the ones am I picking the good ones and then I'm going to leave out the other ones? Guys, this is important for us because there is a systematic rewriting of the scriptures happening in our society right now. When Rob Bell says there is no hell, you have to literally torture. The Bible is a lot like a man. If you torture him long enough, you can make it say whatever you want to. And I don't have time to go into that doctrine this morning. If, you, if you're curious about it, you want to study it in more depth, go Google Francis Chan and look at his response. But at the end of the day, you have to rewrite the scripture for that to fit your deal. In Romans 1, when it talks about a sin called homosexuality, we kind of get a little uncomfortable about it because if you say that it's a sin, well, it freaks everybody out. But that's actually what it says. And anybody that says different, you have to rewrite it. You literally do. If you sit down and talk to these guys, and I have, well, that doesn't really mean that in the original Greek. I'm like, no, 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 I, look, I got a concordance right here. That isn't true, what you just said. You have to rewrite it. Now, lest we be harsh, Paul says, hey, yeah, that's a sin. But then chapter two, which by the way, is just a continuation of the same thought. Verse one, hey, but don't you judge. So in both sides of the ditches, we had error going on, but we have to be able to know what everything in the scripture is and that we believe that the scriptures are inspired. And let me tell you this, if you have a problem with the scriptures being God's inspired word, if you get onto the History Channel and watch these whack jobs with their tweed jackets and uh, little uh, elbow patches and you know they smoke a really expensive pipe, hug about, well, we don't really know if that's what, you know, the earth is really young. It's just, you have to... There was a man who claimed to be God who said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Jesus claimed to be God. They knew what he was saying. This guy, Jesus, the God-man, would talk about Adam and Eve literally. He talked about Jonah being swallowed by a fish. 
He talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, not metaphorically, geographically, literally. And I could go on and on and on. And I say this because, and you're like, Darren, please stop dropping names. I got one more. Tony Campolo wrote a book called Red Letter Christians. And I'm saying this because you have to know the underlying theme of a book like this. And it sounds great. I bought it. If we just follow the words in red, we're good. We're golden. We don't, you know, and he, and he would never say that we just forget about the Old Testament or Revelation. But if it isn't in red, we have plenty to do there. The problem is, is that some of the words in red are words Jesus is quoting the Old Covenant. So now what do we do? The problem you have is that Jesus looked at the, the word, the scriptures, and he actually would say that not a jot or tittle of this will pass. I will, I will, I will all be fulfilled. All of it. There's no such thing. I had a conversation once and we were talking about uh, the, the fulfillment of the Jewish uh, nation and some of the things that are happening and prophecy. And, and he says, well, look, you can't just build your life on some obscure Old Testament prophecy. Let me hear you, uh, hear me clear. There is no such thing as an obscure Old Testament prophecy. There are only ignorant theologians. None of it's obscure. Jesus said it was all there. And, and Paul said, I believe everything in it. And once we embrace everything in it. And then we have to decide what do we do about it. Acknowledge it. And if you don't believe that Jesus was God, prove it to me, they told him. He said, okay, I will. You destroy this temple. You kill me. And in three days, I will rise again. Proof that I am who I said I was. Notwithstanding the hundreds of prophecies and allusions in the Old Testament that he fulfilled to the T, things he had no control over in his own life. But that God, Jesus, either he was wrong and misunderstood that, well, that's really not relevant for today. I, uh, I was a guest on a radio show the other day and they, were they played me an interview for a guy that if I said his name, you'd know it, so I won't. Two's enough in one service, right? <laughs> he says, uh, he says uh, yeah, well, look, you know, abstinence. I got a 15-year-old daughter, so I feel like, you know, I want my kids to be abstinent. This is a guy that wrote a song that in the 90s was this gigantic song about abstinence. And he's like, yeah, but you know, that's kind of a movement that was going on at the time. And he said, you know, the thing is I'm an adult now. And if you're, if you're growing up in abstinence, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know. Times have changed. That ended up on the cutting room floor. But what I'm saying to you is that there's nothing to do with the times have changed. You have to, is this God's inspired word or is it not? And then what do I do about it? Not a burden or a heavy weight, but what do I do about it? Because what Paul would say is that that is, if I'm going to follow the way, that is my roadmap to get to resurrection. Not a list of rules and regulations. It's my roadmap. How do I, what do I do here? What is the way of being a Christian? If I had never been in a church in my entire life, if I were the, like these young, innocent people in a developing nation, and I've just accepted Christ, and I'm reading this for the first time, would I recognize this as an expression of this. How we, sometimes we get our traditions and mixed in with it and the way was so simple. Follow me, Jesus said. There's, there's gonna be suffering, there's gonna be work, it's gonna be tiring, but you're gonna live a fulfilled life, the life more abundant. If you're looking for your life, he said, lose it and then you'll find it. And I'm telling you, I can stand here today, not because I'm smart or great or whatever, but the Lord called Shannon and I to lay some stuff down and. I would say we are more fulfilled in our Christian walk today than we've been in the entire years before. 
because we just laid it out. We have less money. I'm more broke than we've ever been. But I sleep at night. It's the weirdest thing. Because we're fulfilled. We're experiencing an abundant life that was about following Christ. And here's the thing. God may not call you to lay your company down. God just, the way is this. The Holy Spirit is going to tell you today, what is the way that I'm leading you on? And then follow that voice. Where is he taking me to? Every day you wake up and you're going on the way to somewhere whose destination is number three, the resurrection. We don't talk a lot about resurrection in a literal sense. But in the New Testament, over and over, specifically in Paul's writings, he said, he would say in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection, we're all just fools. This is over. That if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, this was a huge, colossal waste of time. Let's all get over to the Golden Corral and beat the whatever denomination gets there before we do. We, we just shut this whole thing down, but that's not what happened. He said the resurrection is real, and it was the first fruits of us. Not dying isn't defeating death. Paul would say, death, where is your, he's quoting the, uh, the, the psalmist, where is your sting? But not dying isn't defeating death. That's cheating death. It's prolonging it. Defeating death is resurrection. That means you and I and anybody that we've had that have gone on before us will we'll rise again. Boom. And that's what Paul was saying was the big ticket item for him. That's our goal is on the way to resurrection where you and I, the promise to stand before Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. We don't have time to go there now, but he would talk about the, the judgment seat of Christ. There are actually two resurrections. There are two judgments. The second one, these are not necessarily in a numerical, chronological order, or even in order of importance. There's just two of them. One of them, well, let's go to the first one, Revelation 20, chapter 20, verse 4. You can go there later, click it on you version. He talks about, I saw those before me. Well, you know what? Let's do it. Sorry. This is one I don't want to get wrong. Verse 4, I'll start and you can catch up. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years the rest of the dead did not come to life until after the thousand years was ended. This is the first resurrection. And he would say in chapter 20, verse 12, just a couple down there, that, and then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. There are two resurrections, and let me tell you what, that one, chapter 20, verse 12, you don't want any part of. It's the great white throne judgment. It's the one where when you say, look, Jesus, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but I got this one. I don't need forgiveness of my sins. I, you know, as, as the people would say at that time, I, we don't want this man to be Lord over our lives. And they rejected him. And at that moment, when you stand before him, this book is open. And everything that you've ever done, every thought you've ever thought, every motive you've ever had, every girl you ever lied to, every parent you ever dishonored, it's all there. Sometimes I think part of God's mercy is that we have such a bad memory. Do you know what I mean? How bad a memory? Oh, man, I really was a jerk. 
People say things when you're not around that are not good about you because you did something wrong. They shouldn't say that. That's gossip, but it's true. And when I say to the, to the Lord, I got it covered. I want to stand on my own merits. You get to. And on that day, it says in verse 13 there that they will send them away to hell. And I want you to know that I think that because the Bible says every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Nobody will walk away from that throne saying, man, God, you were so wrong. This is so unfair. This is so unjust. They might walk away bummed and, and uh, disappointed and sad and sorrowful for the decisions they made, but not because of Jesus. They're not gonna say he is Lord because there's some automaton, bend down or I will chop your head off. No, they're, they're saying it out of their hearts because it's true. That's that judgment, that's that resurrection. You don't want any part of that. But when we say to Jesus, I, uh, as Paul would say, am a, a wretched man. I am a wretched woman. I, have, I, I do the things I don't wanna do. I don't do the things I do. Just, I, I'm a mess up. But I am welcoming the sacrifice that you made, the debt that you paid. Somebody like walked in and paid off your mortgage. Would you keep making the payments? No. The debt, the money, the owed thing that you, you don't even have the right currency to pay for the sins that you've gotten. He says, I'm paying it. And if you receive that, 2 Corinthians 5, that resurrection is, it says, and uh, Paul says that he's going to reward you for what you've done. It's not a punishment thing. He shows a picture basically of all the works that you've ever done, not in a book form or like a video or whatever, PowerPoint presentation, but they're all there and, and it's, they're burned and whatever was pure, whatever was the works, the way, by the way, of Jesus, that stuff remains and for that we will be rewarded. God is not a communist. He's not a socialist. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And some of you would go, you know, you're there, you're in heaven, but you miss out on this whole thing that he had for you because you missed the point. You're still there, yeah. When my son goes to the beach, he's there, but he's making sandcastles down by the water because that's the capacity that he has to enjoy it. He loves it, he's happy to be there. I go to the beach and I'm laying down with a book and I'm, you know, I'm enjoying the thing. I have a, not because I'm a genius, I just am not six years old, I have a larger capacity to enjoy if this cup here is full, you would say it's full, right? If I were to fill a barrel over here with water, it's, both of them are full. Do you see what I'm saying? Both of them are great. Good. Congratulations. You're in heaven. But wouldn't you have the, rather have the barrel? If you're going to spend an eternity. I talked with a guy this week in a wedding who was a, a Jewish man by descent who was a raised uh, Jewish and then became a Christian. And now is an, he says, I'm not an agnostic and I'm not an atheist. And I just don't, why do I need God? Like, I think that makes you so, anyway. But he says, that, why do I need God? That was a, this two-hour conversation. He ends with that, Darren. Tell me, maybe you can answer this question. And I said, I think you've got the wrong question. Why does God need you? I, I've learned about the Jewish thing. You've got to ask questions, back to their questions. And he said, well, it's irrelevant. And I said, well, look, do you think about eternity? And imagine like Uncle Leo on Seinfeld. That's who I'm having this conversation with. And he says, Darren, I don't, eternity is irrelevant to this life. I'm like, oh, if you get 80 years, okay, and you're lucky and you got 80 of them, a million years into eternity, I got to tell you, I'd argue this life is irrelevant, not the one to come. And I would say to you this morning, this life is borderline irrelevant with the notable exception that what we do here is rewarded for what we go into eternity. Our God is just and he's loving. And that resurrection is what we long for.
that we will all stand before our Father to be rewarded for an eternity because of the resurrection of the dead. Those that we have lost that'll go on before us, they're there. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, well, it's actually 2 Corinthians, he talks about this as a tent. So this house that you're in right now, this body, is a tent. I don't know how many of you have a tent in your garage, but how much do you think about it? Have you done some repairs on the tent lately? Do you even know where the, some of the little you know, sticks are that put it together or the tear in it? We don't spend a lot of energy on the tent. I'm not even sure I know where ours is. Because we know it's just a temporary thing. And he would say to you and I that our body is a tent. That it's going to be replaced by a new body. And gang, listen to this, and I'm, and I'm done. Jesus would say, in my house, my father's house, are many rooms. Now, I know that we call that a mansion, and then a lot of the songs have been written. I want you to know that what I'm about to say, I'm not willing to argue theologically on whether we get a mansion or not. But he said there are many rooms in this house. Paul would then talk about this new structure, this building that is going to be built for you in 2 Corinthians 5. And he would say that it's incorruptible, that it's awesome, it's like Superman. But he says it in reference to the house. What if that was a commentary on what Jesus was saying, that in my house are many rooms? What is the Father's house? What does he do in that house? He lives in it. What if the room that we're looking for for eternity for heaven isn't about where I'm going to live, but where God is going to live? In you and in I. In the many rooms. My body right now can take, what, about 14 pounds per square inch of any sort of uh, pressure around me. I can't go into space or I die. I can't go underwater, I'm not Aquaman. But this body that he's building for us, that he says, I've gone to prepare for you, is perfect. Whether that means, I mean, when you really try to get your mind wrapped around eternity, it's a forever proposition. You got a lot of time on your hands. You're not gonna need a place to sleep. You don't need to go to the bathroom. Unless you got a book, I suppose it'll provide something for men, but I, for, for reading purposes. But I'm, this is so much bigger. It says that eye has not seen, ears not heard what I've prepared for you. This body, he would say in 2 Corinthians 5, that is groaning. And I was at the gym this week, and I want you to know that I groaned. I groaned when I got out of bed this morning. My knees are popping, my ankles make noise. I wake up half the house just walking down the hallway because my legs are... <laughs> And Paul said, yeah, don't worry about it. It's just a tent. There's this new thing coming. And he said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, that it's like a seed being planted in the ground. He said, how does, how does the, the, the dead get resurrected? Because if you're a scientist, you know that your body turns to dust, that that dust will go into the dirt, that it will be absorbed by tree roots, that will go up into the trees, that will create leaves, that will eventually fall down, that will then uh, provide uh, that one, fertilizer, that a cow is going to come eat it. He's going to go to the bathroom out in the field, and your dad, who always told you you're never going to amount to, you know, there you are. And, and then it goes back into the ground, and the cycle continues. That's the science thing. And Paul says, don't worry about that. You're a seed. And when a seed goes into the ground for a tree, it's not the same when it comes out. The seed was just the starting of it. This body is the start of it. For those of you that have had your bodies, your loved ones, and they're buried somewhere, whatever, that's just a seed. The, the, thing, the real thing is coming, and it's going to be massive compared to what you have the resurrection. Paul said, I am guilty of these three things. I'm a believer. I follow the way of Jesus Christ. I'm not punching a card. 
I didn't just sign up like I did on my voter registration card. This is a lifestyle journey that I'm on. The map that I take with me is every word of God written for me. And my destination is the resurrection of the dead. You and I, your loved ones and you and me, we'll all see each other again. And maybe if in this lifetime we live to see when Jesus comes, we get to skip one of those steps. But the rest, most likely we're all going to be there one day. That's our deal. And, and, and Paul said this, and we're going to worship now as I say this, but just that's how I strive for having a good conscience. If you're really feeling bummed about your walk with Christ, maybe it's because I'm not on the way. Maybe it's because I brought a giant U-Haul full of junk that I can just pull over and walk away from it. Any religion, anything that wasn't in there that I've been trying to make myself do, some burden I've put on myself, pff, drop it and go through the narrow gate that leads to life that leads to resurrection, that leads to you and I. A million years, I'll meet you on Jupiter, I don't know, and talk about these little times we had here on earth, but it's the way that we can live with a good conscience before God, because we did it differently. Father, thank you for your word and for your, for your scriptures that I believe all of them, and they're a light for my feet, they're a lamp to my path, and how I should live. I ask that you would illuminate all of our ways this morning. And like Paul, that we could strive to live with a good conscience before God and man. Lord, that someday if someone writes an article about us, that they could say, yeah, their life was different. It was better. And it just starts with us following your way, not ours. I ask for you to guide us, to speak to us individually, each one today. You said you would write your will on our hearts and on our minds and Ask that your voice would infiltrate our minds and drop down to our hearts and tell us what you have for us today individually in your name and the, the nature, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.